I was just wondering with me, Tom Salmon, the show that dives into film, music and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is the co-founder and the director of the Cinema Museum, Martin Humphreys. Hello, Martin, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with your work at the Cinema Museum and the role of a museum director, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> OK, well... The Cinema Museum is about the experience of going to the cinema as it was in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. The exhibition is all to do with interior design, decor and technical equipment from films. And my role as the director, um, I'm a co-founder, is really to keep the place up and running and try and secure our long-term future. Um, we've been going since 1984. We became a charity in 1986. We moved into our current building, which is a wonderful Victorian building called the Master's House, in 1998. And we're based in Kennington or close to Elephant and Castle. OK, so now before we jump into the history, as you've sort of briefly mentioned, and the community around uh, the cinema museum and the day-to-day running of it, um, I'd like you to cast your mind back to your earliest memory of going to the cinema. Where was that cinema and what did you see? Um, well, my earliest memory of going to the cinema is... that There's two possibilities here. This is a right. long time ago. I'm 67 now and I would have been about 12. OK. Either... I went to the village hall in Portishead where I was brought up on a Saturday morning for Saturday morning pictures mm-hmm. because there was a man and a van and a 16mm projector right. who would come every Saturday and he would show films for the kids in the morning and then films for the adults in the evening. Right. The other alternative is that I cycled to Clevedon, which is seven miles away, and had a wonderful little cinema. And I can only imagine that whatever the film was which mm. i don't actually uh, okay. remember yeah, yeah. was something suitable for kids um and about that particular experience uh what was it about it that really caught your imagination instead of all the different like art forms of say like music art um that what was it about particularly about cinema that really sort of like caught your attention can you remember that particular time well the atmosphere you know being in a shared space with other people enjoying a film reacting to it emotionally, laughing possibly with it, or Mm. being frightened by it, or being charmed by it, or whatever. It's a community experience. It's like theatre, which is another one of my loves. And um, it's important it's done with a live audience. I think the cinematic experience Mm -mm. of watching a film with an audience is fabulous. Yeah, there is something very special about that that adds like a third or fourth dimension to actually seeing a film when, mm-hmm. you, when you're in a packed audience, even though it's silent, it's full of strangers. Um, there's something very special about that. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you a very hard question <coughs> now. Um, and it's a question I'm not sure I can answer myself. <coughs> What's your favourite film which you first saw at the cinema? 
Well, that, of course, from someone like me is an impossible question. Um, I probably have ten favourite films today and okay. ten different favourite films tomorrow. Uh, it's the same for me. It's the same for me, to be honest. I mean, I do have films that I really love. I love The Red Shoes by Michael Powell and Emmerich oh, nice. Pressburger, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I did see in the, in the cinema. It would have been a revival at mm. the NFT, I think. Um, there's a wonderful Andrei Tarkovsky film called Mirror. Mm. He was a very, very interesting Russian film director, long dead now, who made very, very strange but interesting films. And then I love things like screwball comedies from the 1930s. Right. Uh, and late silent films, I prefer to early silent films generally. Mm -hmm. um, I love thrillers, film noir, just a whole range of films. And I, go to, I still go to the cinema today. I saw Downton Abbey the other day. I saw okay. The Northman the other day. Yeah, yeah. You know, I like to try and go not quite once a week because there's so much going on at the museum. I probably can't carve out the time that frequently. But I think it's very, very important to still be going to cinemas and um, encouraging other people to do the same. <laughs> Uh, we show a lot of films at the museum, right. different types of films, and we get a lot of appreciation from our audiences. So, I just want to sort of do like a quick uh, parallel between two different uh, films, which kind of makes sense to me, may not to you. Um, in terms of silent film, um, which is sort of a throwback in terms of like, it's not something that's widely watched now. But so, and even back then, um, even though you started watching cinema, I guess like sort of 50s sort of type like when you're like a child remember that sort of time maybe well I was born in 55 so, so I wouldn't have seen anything until the early 60s so early 60s so even then when you were basically going through film even to go look back at silent films that would have been a way sort of like back yes I probably didn't see a silent film until I was in my 20s right right to be, right to be honest because at that time people didn't it was it was a kind of specialisation mm. It's not like today. Silent films are very, very popular today. Right. You'd be very surprised. We have silent film screenings every three weeks. That's yeah. the Kennington Bioscope with live music, mm. usually piano. They're packed. Right. Absolutely packed. There's an enormous amount of interest being shown over the last 30-plus years. Mm. Uh, there are two film festivals devoted only to silent film. Uh, there's also two festivals in Britain that deal with silent film. Uh, you... It's really made a comeback in mm. terms of the richness of that experience. I mean, it's quite difficult introducing young people to silent films because you have to learn to adjust. Right. You know, the mores are different. The style of acting is different. Mm. So sometimes people laugh when it's inappropriate. Right. So usually a silent film screening has an introduction by somebody who knows the film very well and they can point out anything that might be anachronistic mm -hmm. or in today's moral values would not be appropriate yeah 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 you know yeah you have to contextualize stuff <laughs> yeah, of course um but that experience of going to the cinema with other people whether it's silent or sound or what it is is a unique experience, I think. It is. Um, so just following on from that question, just doing my research, like cinema has always been like a working class entertainment since 1895 when the Lumiere brothers set up the Cinemagraph to yes. direct short films for paying audiences at the Café Grand. I mean, it really is about sitting in a dark auditorium in silence, full of strangers, watching stories told through moving images. Would, 
which have basically enthralled multiple generations and still continue uh, to do so. Um, and I was just thinking, actually, um, in terms of the progress of, say, from silent film to today, um, there was a lot of progress made through uh, through sound design, uh, projection, and uh, produ- production. But I just wonder what your feeling is. is have you reached a sort of bottleneck in terms of cinema? Because I guess like the zenith, you would say, in terms of popular sort of cinema at the moment, would be like Avatar 2, which they've spent a billion dollars on. They've spent like 15 years making the thing. Have we reached a point where cinemas, uh, I guess like technically speak, has reached a-, a point where it can't innovate anymore? No, I don't think so at all. Um, the range of films that's available to people is mm-hmm. incredibly wide. Now, there was a period where it seemed that the Hollywood film studios were only interested in audiences, mostly of men, aged 16 to 24, yeah. with the product that they were pushing out. That's changed. There's a much wider range. Mm-hmm. I think they cottoned on when they realised that quite a few art house films did it incredibly well with older audiences, mm-hmm. um, like 45 Years, for example, which really captured something about people's lives through Tom Courtney um, being this man revisiting his past. Right. Um, if you think about the number of cinemas, there are mainstream cinemas, you know, like the Odeons and all of that, who show the blockbusters, the Marvel films and all, everything like that. But there's also the independents, the picture houses, the everyman. And whilst they also show, you know, the Northman was being shown at picture house, yeah. they also show art house films mm-hmm. and smaller films. They encourage young filmmakers as well in terms of what they're doing. And they provide opportunities for people. Mm. Um, I mean, it's always been difficult to break into the film industry. And at one time, if your dad was working in the industry, you would end up with a job in the industry. But it's still difficult today for young filmmakers. You know, they're hoping to make a short film that people will latch onto that will lead to the possibility of them being able to make maybe a longer film, possibly Mm. a feature or whatever. But it's still a challenge for people to get in to the industry. And I mean, even well-established directors can struggle to get their next project off the ground if their previous project has not been as financially successful as the studios hoped. Mm. Then they won't greenlight your next one. If you're very successful and you have a blockbuster, I mean, Christopher Nolan, you know, open door (laughs) for him, (laughs) uh, I expect. it, it just varies and it depends. I mean, at the museum, we try and do Q&As with people from the film industry talking about their career in front of the screen and behind the screen. So we have directors, costume designers, actors coming along and doing that. We also put on very popular events, which are reminiscence events about pioneering television yeah. series. We We had a whole afternoon and evening devoted to the bill, you know, mm. the p- long-running police series. Yeah, pa- yeah. Absolutely jam-packed. Mm. I mean, it's extraordinary to me that lots of people love these old yeah. TV programmes and would come just to hear people talking about what it was like working on them, what kind of relationships they had, and then they can do... You know, they can get their photos signed and all that kind of <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. So we do a whole range of events. 
Um, so I just want to jump back in time yeah. a bit. Yes. Um, so now I understand you met your partner and co-founder of the Cinema Museum, uh, Ronald Grant, in Brixton in the early 1980s. Uh, not quite. Okay. Not quite right. It was 1979. Okay. I was at that time working at Oval House Arts and Community Centre. I was the kind of centre manager. Yeah. And on a Sunday, we would open the cafe at lunch because mm -hmm. we often ran workshops on Sunday afternoons. Ronald would come in from the Oxfordshire countryside where he lived at that time, mm. and he would do a stint with London Friend, which was, you know, a place where people would ring up if they had a problem. Oh, okay, right, right. So, and because he's a night owl, he would do the night shift. Well, it's obviously more difficult to find people willing to do the night shift than the yeah. day shift. So after he finished, mm. which would be at some time in the morning, he would come down to Oval House basically for his breakfast. Right, right. And we got talking, realised that we were attracted to one another mm. and started seeing each other. Yeah. Now, he already had an extraordinary collection of cinema memorabilia yeah. because he's 20 years older than me. He went into the cinema industry as an apprentice projectionist when he was 15. And this was in Aberdeen. And the apprenticeship took five years for him to become a chief projectionist. If you're in the business, it's much easier to collect things to do with that business. So by the time I met him, he had an extraordinary collection of film stills, posters, books, magazines, equipment, cinema seats. Mm. I was astonished that somebody could have all this material, which yeah. was actually stored in Brixton, not far from the Ritzy Cinema, in fact. Now, at this time, many, many high street cinemas were being demolished. Mm. There were a lot of changes going on in the cinema business in that these beautiful Art Deco cinemas with a thousand seats were not really suitable now. Some of the cinemas had been converted into smaller screens. That didn't really work because the sound would leak and all that. So these buildings were difficult. We understand that. And also they were on prime high street sites, so their real estate value was high. Yeah. We discovered if we offered the demolition men beer money, they would let us in. We could take anything we wanted because they didn't care. They were going to destroy it. Right. So for a five-year period, we very seriously rescued many, many, many items from cinemas that are no longer here. Mm. We also acquired from his old company in Aberdeen a very large amount of material, and it was the acquisition of this material from Aberdeen, which was really good quality, uniforms, carpets, seat fabrics, projectors, light fittings, incredible. Yeah. That was the tipping point for the creation of the museum because we now had so much material, we thought we must make it publicly available to people. Mm. And initially, because the building we were in was not suitable for public access, it was mostly small rooms in an old Georgian building, we would have a touring exhibition and we had loaned items to other museums like the Museum of the Moving Image, which was on the South Bank, long gone now. Then in 1986, we became a charity with a board of trustees. And basically, the job of the board of trustees was to find a way of relocating the collection into better premises. That turned out to be the old fire station in Renfrew Road, which right. is just around the corner from our 
current building mm -hmm. much better we we could people could come and do research people could come and see some of the collection mm. it wasn't really open access it was by appointment rather than yeah anything else and then in 1998 we moved into our current building where we were able to display the collection for the first time in a way that tells a story people can come in they can go around generally i advise people a guided tour is better because it's more informative yeah yeah because uh, we're we're not, we're not a museum where you can go around with an ipod and listen you know the exhibits talk to you yet yeah right, i mean right, maybe yeah, in the yeah. future that will happen mm. but currently it's it's me or one of the other volunteers taking people around and talking about uh, the collection and what there is and how it was used and what how it worked and all that kind of thing so it it really engages people mm -hmm. uh, i mean obviously for people you know 50 plus it's bringing back their memories of yeah, cinema going yeah, yeah. because one of the things that happened in life generally was when you were an adolescent and a young person you would go to the cinema you would take your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever but once you got married and had children that completely changed it mm. because if you were going to the cinema you needed a babysitter maybe you couldn't afford a babysitter so people's cinema going habits once they got together would change mm -hmm. um, and that then of course once your children were old enough you might start going back to the cinema because you didn't need babysitters and things anymore you could just mm. go off and if there was something on that you fancied you could go and see it mm -hmm. um, and there you know there 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 was i would say until probably the 1980s a very wide range of possible films to go and see mm -hmm. you know from westerns to romantic comedies to serious dramas to thrillers to whatever it kind of narrowed a bit really yeah. in the 80s and 90s mm. um, and then it expanded in the 2000s and now i think it's very very rich in terms of the possibilities of what you can go and see um, and that's good and to be encouraged mm -hmm. very much so i think yeah. i would say um, so I just wanted to just jump a little back, a little further back, yes. just going back to the newsletter, which I spoke to just, oh, yes. just before about the 1985 newsletter, that um, was talking about the Board of Trustees, and it was also talking about, the, I think it was the Eros Cinema and Piccadilly Circus, which had yes. been closed, and also, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but is it Tocaster? There was another cinema. It was Toaster. That's the one, Toaster, Toaster. Um, where a lot of these artefacts came from. and. What it made me think about, because in the newsletter it describes about being able to get certain objects, we're not being able to get others due yeah. to a lack of funds. Um, so you can't save everything. So no. in terms of like, and that's a, sort of a question in terms of what do you pick and choose? What is the things do you feel that are most uh, valuable okay. versus uh, others? How do you make that difficult okay. decision? Um, this will be for when I'm when I've gone and other people are running the museum. Okay. Um, it's very common that museum founders are terrible at saying no. Right, right. Okay, if you did research on this, I think you would probably discover that every museum founder, in terms of collecting objects, would find it very difficult to say no to anything. Mm -hmm. We are very bad at saying no mm. when people offer us things. 
We do get offers of donations today, for example. In the post arrived a box with about 15 diaries mm. where this person had recorded every single film they'd seen and what they thought about it. Oh, wow. And we have a, yeah. we have a, a collection of this kind of material. Mm. So I was thrilled to accept that because we can add it to the... And in fact, there was a project pre-COVID where two young men were researching things like people doing diaries, keeping records of their thoughts and feelings about film. And they, from that, they created an exhibition at Birkbeck, which okay. was really, really good. Very yeah. powerful, I have to say. Um, there are things we turn down. We won't accept... There are a lot of film magazines we won't accept now mm. because they're impossible to get rid of. Every cinema enthusiast seems to have a collection of sight and sound, so that's definitely a no. <laughs> Please <Yeah. laughs> remember that. But there are always other things coming up where it's interesting. You know, somebody's got home movies. Mm. Uh, would we like those? Yes, we would. Thank you very much. Um, or they might have some artefact that they've also rescued from a cinema but they don't want anymore. Right. Um, so we do get offered things in that way. I mean, the mo one of the most recent donations, strangely enough, is Colin Firth's Armani suit from Supernova. Oh, OK, yeah. Which the yeah, film yeah. production company contacted me, said, would we like it to put it on display? Mm. And I said, yes, because whilst we have cinema uniforms on display, we don't have a huge amount of material that relates to film specifically. Right, yeah. And I thought, well, how can I turn this down? Mm -hmm. you know, and there it is. It's in, it's in our foyer now next to the box office. Yeah. With a little note about what it is and a poster of Supernova. And I was thrilled to accept that um, so what will happen is we are in the process of on what's called on the road for museum accreditation this can take quite a long time mm -hmm. but basically you have to develop policies in every area that you can possibly think of so there'll be an ecological policy there'll be a staff policy blah 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 mm -hmm. and one of them is a collections policy right what the museum will collect mm -hmm. And why, what it won't collect, what it won't take in anymore. Mm -hmm. So the generation after me yeah. will be much firmer at saying, this is not suitable for the museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they will also probably be much better at disposals. Mm. I mean, we do, in order to raise funds for the museum, one of the things we do is we do sell duplicate items if we've got duplicate posters for example if you go on our website there is a shop a website shop we sell books we sell stills we sell magazines this is one of the many income strands that we run because being an independent museum you basically have to have as many different income streams as you can possibly generate right so it's not just the events but it's private hires of mm -hmm. the building um it might be put it, it's doing educational work with people. We do a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's LCC at Elephant and Castle, so obviously they're a natural university for us to work with, which we do. And there's also South Bank University and Westminster and De Montfort University in Leicester, um, where we all have these relationships with. And that's another thing that's really, really important, that the museum develops relationships with the local community, mm. with lots of other organisations, so that you have reciprocal 
events going on we we promote other people's events we ask other people to promote our events yeah you know it's all about establishing yourself as part of a network mm. which is being very very supportive of one another that's mm. an important element i would say um, and so going back to when you set up the museum in like 1984, and I think yeah. we spoke briefly just outside actually about there being smaller museums that are collecting different film-related items, maybe some yeah. are more specific with sound equipment. How many of those have sort of survived and thrived alongside uh, the cinema well, museum? Well, now there is the museum in Bradford, which is film, photography, television and digital. There's... What was the Bill Douglas collection in Exeter mm. as part of the university, which I believe is now called the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum. Right. Um, in Scotland, there's a film archive which does do some exhibition-related work. Mm -hmm. That's probably it. I mean, there is a thriving... Excuse me... <coughs> Net <coughs> network of film archives. Right. You know, there's the north, northwest, northeast. There's one down um, in the West Country. There's mm. one in Brighton. There, they would all be communicating with one another, doing projects. Yeah. Uh, and basically rescuing film. Mm-hmm. So, but going back to 1985. The most notable thing that happened in relationship to the British cinema industry was the introduction of the multiplex. Mm. And this was the point in Milton Keynes. I believe it was a Canadian company. Oh, it was an American AMC. AMC. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, this was like 10 screens. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This was really radical and innovative. The idea that you could go to a cinema with plenty of parking, you had this incredible choice of 10 films, although later on, sometimes they'd use two screens to do the same film, yeah. if, it was very, if it was Star Wars or something. Now, cinema was really in the doldrums then. Declining audiences, apart from, I suspect, art house cinema, but in terms of high street cinemas, so this came like a bolt of lightning out of the blue, mm. was very successful, and of course then you suddenly saw multiplexes mushrooming mm. around the mm -hmm. country. I mean, there's quite a few in London, where that possibility of choice, ease of access, um, food, mm. which has changed significantly in the cinema now I yeah. mean if you go to an everyman you can actually have a meal you can yeah which yeah, I feel before. is a rather bizarre <laughs> the idea of watching the film and eating your dinner at the same time yeah. I can't quite get my mm. head around that but the idea that you would go and it's not only popcorn it's not only cheap fizzy drinks but you know it's more sophisticated uh, you, you could go you could you could get a decent drink, you could get a decent snack. This all added to the cinema experience. Yeah. And that's what lots of pioneering cinemas do. They mm. like to try out these different things. I mean, 
in the Everyman in Portobello Road, I believe it's sofas that you yeah. can sit in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's very different from sitting in cinema seats, which might be a bit uncomfortable, depending mm. on your size. Um, so they have to be looking at new ideas, fresh ideas, you know, what's going to attract people. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to do the same thing in terms of our programming. Right. I mean, some of the volunteers at the museum program some of the seasons that are there. I get approaches from people um, asking if it's possible to do an event. I was emailing uh, about a queer horror event that's coming up in mm. July, I think, a double bill. Well, that will be a 50-50 box office split with a guarantee to the museum of a minimum amount. And I'm happy to try it. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing them already at the Castle Cinema, which I don't actually know, and they're very popular. But mm. we would be a bigger venue for them, I think. Yeah. So I'm happy to try this. When people come to me, if the idea sounds good, I'll organise it, we'll book a date, we'll make the arrangements, and we'll try it out. Mm. If it doesn't succeed, then either we don't pursue it... Yeah. Or we might think, well, this n needs a bit of nurturing. There is an audience for it. We've got to find them. Mm -hmm. Where are they? Um, not everything works, but you have to be prepared to try. Mm. Um, we've been running a series of older European films, which, generally speaking, would not have been seen on the big screen for many, many years. We have not been able to find the audience for that. We've right. not been able to tap into... Who are the people who would come and see these films? Whereas the film noir seasons, packed. Mm. Had mm. a really loyal audience for that. Yeah. You know, people who come to everyone if they possibly can, mm -hmm. and so on. So you just have to try all these different things. Um, so just picking up on the point you made about uh, queer cinema. Yeah. It's sort of interesting in terms of like collecting this archive along with all these different uh, films. I just wonder in terms of like the coming from, say, uh, from say like the 60s through to the 70s to the 80s to the 90s in terms of queer cinema in terms of even obtaining those particular films to show and even that community how has that been for you moving through that space and has that opened up more? Yes it has um, pre-Covid we in collaboration with a group of other people we created the, what was called the Vito Project this was based on uh, Vito Russo a wonderful American film critic who wrote a book exploring images of homosexuality in Hollywood cinema. And so we based the series of screenings on the films he talks about in his book so that we mm -hmm. could have a discussion mm -hmm. after it. Was very successful. COVID put the hat on that. Mm. But Vito has come back. Right. So we're showing Compulsion, mm -hmm. which is a very interesting 50s film. We showed Tea and Sympathy... Now, these are films that have gay themes or elements in them, but it's before homosexuality was legalised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a very interesting mm. avenue to look at. When we, prior to, when we did the Veto project before, we would actually do very contemporary films uh, in, because we wanted to show films that had trans-related issues, we wanted to show obviously films that were women-focused, mm. and we're now running a season called Sappho, 
which is films that have some kind of lesbian related yeah. content. We do another season which is called Women and Cocaine, which is about pre code strong female actresses like Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, and so on, mm. in the films that c cover the cusp of the freedom that people had pre the Hollywood Code. Yeah. And then the realities of the Hollywood Code being introduced and the films becoming more saccharine, really. Mm. So those strands are really important. And of course, you want to create safe spaces for people to see the films in. Yeah. That's yeah, very yeah. important. Mm. Um, so growing up and navigating that sort of space, was that an issue for you when you wanted to engage uh, with like queer cinema in terms of having a safe space and an outlet for you? Well, when I was growing up, yes. I mean, what, what did you see on television? Rubbish, you know, mm. Mr. Humphreys from that terrible sitcom. Oh my God, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, ghastly stereotypes. Mm. And generally speaking, in the cinema, there wasn't much. I mean, Midnight Cowboy was a revolution, revelation, really. And John Schlesinger, of course, was a gay man. Mm -hmm. um, but finding positive mm. depictions of lesbians and gay men was really quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, a lot of people struggled with that because all they saw in relationship to themselves was negativity. Mm. Now, I... I have been very lucky in that I've been very comfortable with my sexuality since I was about 15. But that isn't always people's experience. Yeah. Some families find it very difficult when their child comes out. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to connect. They don't really understand it. That can make it difficult for people. So whilst we've made many, many, many strides, I mean, you know, gay marriage for example and the civil partnerships was fantastic yeah and nowadays it's much more recognized that it's part of a spectrum people are on and you know homophobia is to be batted away as much as possible please yeah and all that kind of stuff um but there are still young people who do find it difficult you know mm. they're not seeing enough or they don't have access to enough i mean television mm. has significantly improved i have to say mm -hmm. uh, particularly you know, in in the alternative channels that show yeah. stuff, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, which we wouldn't have had before. But now, generally speaking, it's pretty good. Okay, cool. So I'd just like to sort of move on yep. to the Cinema Museum itself. Yes. Um, so we briefly sort of spoke about it, but it's basically a very historic building. Um, yes. It was the old workhouse be, uh, built in 1871, which uh, silent uh, film star Charlie Chaplin, his mother and his brother Sidney, unfortunately worked in yep. um, to save themselves from being uh, homeless. So I think we talked about it sort of briefly a little bit, but what was your journey to discovering that uh, that building okay. in the middle of the we, we were We were round the corner in the old fire station. This was a building that was owned by Lambeth Council because it had been a housing office. <laughs> they were happy to have us as a tenant because they had a problem with a sitting tenant. There were 14 flats up above. But they had resolved that problem by 1997 and they put the building on the market... Fortunately, the property developer who bought it wasn't ready to do any redevelopment for a year, so we had an extra year to look. Mm. During that time, Ronald went with Anna Odrick, who's a local artist and one of the long-standing volunteers at the museum. They went on a Charlie Chaplin walk, which I've always found this very odd, but the walk 
around Kennington ended up at the workhouse. Right. And it seemed very odd to me that in terms of all the places Chaplin was in Kennington, to end a walk at a place where he must have been miserable mm. and unhappy yeah, and yeah, psychologically yeah. disturbed <laughs> all yeah. seemed very odd. Mm. Anyway, the building appeared to be empty. So we contacted the NHS who owned it at that time. They were a smaller trust than they became. And we spoke to the capital planning manager and he said, well, we're not thinking of renting the building out, but keep in touch with me. Mm -hmm. We have commissioned a report to see whether it would be possible to convert this building into a headquarters building. Yeah. Fortunately, that report said it would be far too expensive. The building was Victorian. It wouldn't be suitable mm. to be a headquarters building for the NHS. And once that had, once that had been completed... The next time we contacted him, he said, come and talk to me. Yeah. And we went and saw him. We agreed terms. We moved in in February 1998. OK. Now, we tried to buy the building from South London and Maudsley NHS Trust, who became the owners through the amalgamation of three separate NHS trusts. That didn't succeed. Um, in the end, they decided to put the whole site, that's our building and an ex-nursing home next door, that is up on a, quite a lot of land, to the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. However, we managed to persuade them, because we had been in negotiation with them, that they put in a condition of sale that whoever the new owner was, that they should try and ensure the long-term future of the museum. Mm -hmm. Or they should take that on as a commitment we have now successfully negotiated with anthology stroke life story who are our landlords right that we are on a four-year lease which is meant to give us time to fundraise to find the premium which will allow us to have a 999 year lease at peppercorn mm. now what we have to do in the next four years we have to raise a minimum of a million pounds for the lease right we would like to try and raise more than that because mm. the building needs work doing on it plus we have development plans so watch this space folks because there will be announcements being made uh, we will be going to supporters of the museum asking if they can help we hope to go to the arts council and the heritage lottery uh, any other funders that we can approach and find and we will also do a crowdfunding campaign right so that people can who love the museum but perhaps don't have huge amounts of money yeah can give us 20 pounds 50 pounds 100 pounds or whatever whereas we'll be going to other people and trying to seek larger amounts of money mm -hmm. to see if they are willing to pledge that money yeah and then if we succeed we'll get the money mm. um, and then we can acquire the long lease fingers crossed everybody um and so why is it so important that the cinema museum and places like it stay open well it's really really important that you have a wide range mm. of museums of educational institutions of cinemas of theaters the much choice you can get the better yeah and the thing with museums like the cinema museum we're a small independent museum entirely volunteer run at the moment that we special specialize and it's very important to have 
those kind of museums alongside the British Museum, mm -hmm. which is amazing, of course, and Victoria and Albert and all of that. But these smaller museums that cater possibly for elements of people's lives, they really can enrich rich you mm. i mean the people who came on the tour today were all three of them were very very enthusiastic at the end yeah you know they'd had a really interesting morning they'd been able to contribute to in terms of the discussion so there was we were we were all talking amongst ourselves yeah. they weren't just listening to me those kind of experiences are really important and people will pass them on. They'll say, yeah. oh, I went to this really interesting museum, mm. blah, blah, you should look it up, you know, go to the website yeah, and find it and all that. Um, in 2018, you did win Time Out's Most Loved Local we've Cultural won, Spot Award. We've won it twice, actually. Oh, you've won it twice? We've won it twice. Um, so when was it? So 2018 and then and what was then, the other time? When was the other one? 19? Or maybe it was 20. Before oh COVID, yeah, that's right. Yeah, twenty before COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it's fa it was fantastic. Mm. I mean, to this is people voting for it. It's not they're not being canvassed. Time Out just invites people to come and you tell them what your favourite X, Y, and Z right, is. Right, right, right. So it's really a loving award. And we were thrilled. I have to say. And what's been the lasting impact of winning that award twice? Um, well, it certainly boosted our audiences right. because of the publicity we got surrounding it, which was very, very good. Hmm. Um, because there weren't, there, there weren't only articles in Time Out. Some of the other newspapers and magazines picked it up yeah. and wanted to run with it. Uh, so it, it got us noticed. Right. right. You know, that's, that's the importance of these things mm -hmm. when they happen. Yeah. Um, about 10 years ago, we won a volunteers award for which was part of the museum industry right. and we had to go to an awards ceremony and of course that was really s saying to our volunteers you're wonderful mm. you're very skilled um you know and as a result you've won this award they right. created a special award for us nice which was really really good um and i believe in 2021 you um won a film Her a heritage award I believe, yes. uh, um, according to my scribble notes, it was a Jean, I forget what the surname is. Jean Mitri. That's the one it was. Um, now, this is the equivalent of being given an Oscar. Right. This is an award which is given by the Giannate del Cinema Muto in Italy. Mm. They're based in Pordenone, north of Venice. It's a silent film festival. It's been running as long as we have, I think. And we, Ronald and I used to go every year and it lasts a week you sh they show silent films from early in the morning until late at night yeah and they have this very very prestigious jean mitri award which their board of trustees decides who to give it to we were chosen right for our work of creating the museum keeping it up and running unfortunately i couldn't go to the award ceremony but ronald did yeah he made a very very moving speech which you can see on youtube and we were given this delightful award mm. and i can't tell you the kind of level of respect and acknowledgement mm. that means because it's your peers in the same industry recognizing the quality yeah. of what you've managed to achieve mm -hmm. Uh, superb. I mean, it was really cherry on the top. And it's not uh, the thing I sort of take away from this whole experience is like it's not. It, it's never been easy, and you've always been fighting. Yeah. There's all. So I guess like in terms of like 
what because it's so awards are a great sort of like point of like yeah I've, I've achieved this great thing but through those sort of more stressful like darker times what's kept you motivated to keep on trucking and pursue <laughs> pursue uh, well, this well i love what i do yeah you um, know um, i really do love what i do and where do you think that like comes from what well <laughs> i've always been into the arts yeah when i was younger and I thought I would end up in theatre, which I did very briefly. I never expected I would co-found a cinema museum and be running it. Yeah. But I have loved it really from day one in the sense of when we created it, it meant that we could start opening up. And that was the really important thing, to make the collection accessible, mm. available to people. It's And it's so interesting because it's social history mm. it's entertainment it's ab about the historical experience yeah it's to do with film which is an alluring industry anyway mm -hmm. i've met really fascinating and interesting people over the years um it's richly re rewarding actually so it may have been stressful, yeah. which it was certainly at the moments when we didn't have a lease yeah, and we yeah. had no idea if we were going to be closed down or not. Mm. I can definitely do without that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, to see it being successful, seeing how important it is to so many people, mm -hmm. that is a, a reward in itself. Mm. You know, because I have to say, when Ronald and I started there was a bit of, well, who are these bonkers people? Mm. You know? Yeah. Old bits of, bits of old cinema and old seats. Well, what's all that? Well, that, there's been a complete change round. We don't get mm. that attitude from anybody anymore. Yeah. Because they can see what we've achieved. Mm -hmm. You know? We're not just two eccentric men with a lot of cinema artifacts yeah. we've managed to create something that's meaningful that's important to people that is celebrated um you know and we spent a lot of time creating links to the local communities around us different types of groups of people so that in a sense the museum is like a rich fruitcake right um, so I'm going to ask you a very hard question now. So, uh -huh. what, what is your what's the, your item you treasure the most? Um, which is the item you treasure the least in terms of <laughs> uh, things that you've? Okay, there are many things I love in the museum, particularly the Art Deco design of everything. You know, that's a constant pleasure. But my most favourite object mm. is a Felix the Cat toy okay. from 1924. Felix the cat was a very naughty cat who appeared in lots of very short animated films. Mm. He was delightful and entrancing. And merchandising in the cinema has always gone hand in hand. People would be very surprised, I think, to realise that lots of silent films, they would merchandise stuff off the back of it. Oh, wow, yeah. I didn't realise that. So he's a little wooden toy. He's got one of those bases that if you push with your thumb, he goes mm. all floppy. Right. He's delightful. Um, but I also love some of the, lots of the other things in the collection. The things I am less keen on, and actually we don't really have much on display, is plastic. Right. 
because unfortunately one of the things that happened with cinemas was that they changed all these beautiful art deco signages display boards and they replaced them with plastic mm. that's not very interesting to us but we do have some examples but they're in the basement that's an interesting point so as people move forward and continue to archive cinema and cinemas although it's changed drastically so i guess like so the so it goes to like 2000 and i don't know 100 or something and people are looking back at say sort of cinema and i say the mid 2000s and stuff what do you think is going to kind of be left or even be left because it's so disposable now well that's a really hard question to answer because i there's no way i can anticipate what technological advances mm. there are going to be i mean people already watch films in many many different ways from tablets to phones to ipads to televisions to going to the cinema themselves um whether the technology will be moving more and more towards people individually watching films, which mm. is certainly one road that is possible. Mm -hmm. My hope is that because there's been a revival, not helped by COVID, I have to say, but there has been a revival of people wanting to have a communal experience of going to the cinema if that can be maintained, if that experience can be passed down through the generations, then I think cinema has a, as a communal experience has a healthy future. Mm -hmm. But it is a question mark. Um, so just following on from that last point, do you think the current government and the Arts Council is doing enough to develop and protect local cultural hotspots and businesses in a post-pandemic world? Um, not the government, no. I think they've behaved abominably uh, in terms of supporting the arts. Um, they were terrible in terms of supporting theatre, which was in real struggle. And I mean, I know mm. some have closed. Cinemas also suffered a lot during the pandemic. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't open, they weren't getting income. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know what support was offered. I mean, we... We applied for everything we possibly could, but we only got one mm -hmm. grant yeah. from the Art Fund, who've been amazing and wonderful and fabulous to us. Uh, you know, lots of people really struggled, and I don't think the government took on the l right level of responsibility for the arts, and mm. they still haven't. Mm. And so what do you think that they could do on a proactive level, say, like today? More money. <laughs> More money. More money yeah, and yeah. make it... So it's not so bureaucratic to get. Mm. I mean, I absolutely understand that you need to have processes where it's determined that people's applications are right. I mean, one of the problems with some of the COVID funding money, there was fraud. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So obviously you want to put into place things that would prevent that. But really, the hurdles that people have to jump through sometimes... Uh, make it very, very difficult. And I think there should be some examination of ways in which organisations, maybe only applying for relatively smallish amounts of money, don't have to go through so many hurdles and hoops. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if it's a huge grant, then yes, that, that does need to be uh, tracked thoroughly. And obviously, all the right 
T's have to be crossed and I's mm. dotted and all the rest of it. But I do think there could be much more funding for the arts if the government was so minded. Yeah, I agreed. Um, so I've got a few more questions. Just quickly, what is your dream project if money and time wasn't an issue? My dream project? Yeah. If money and time was not an issue. Well, my dream project would be to do the redevelopment of the museum. Mm -hmm. um, we have a yard at the back which we could cover with a green roof. That means the whole exhibition could be on the ground floor. That makes it very user-friendly. It's completely accessible. We could use the main hall on the first floor as we do currently for events, but it could be a less crowded room possibly in terms of the artifacts that is in it so i'd like to see that development of the museum that would yeah. make my heart glow um i think if if i retired is that ever going to happen but if i retired i think my dream would be probably to be uh hopping around the world going to film festivals right <laughs> yeah, nice. It's been very nice. Um, sort of jump back into the collection in your archive. It, is there an idea of you sort of talked about it briefly in terms of like loaning out your collection to other yep. uh, museums and stuff? Does that happen? Yeah, we do. Do we've currently got a loan to Birmingham mm. Museum. Um, they have a big exhibition which opened a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and that includes some items from the museum and a lot of photographs of Birmingham cinemas. Yeah. Um, I like doing loans to people. Um, it helps bring our profile up mm -hmm. and the fact that people can come to us. We also offer research facilities because, you know, we have 10,000 books to do with cinema. We have a room full of trade and fan magazines. We have a room that's full of photographs of cinemas, interiors, exteriors. There's always people doing research. Yeah. And we really encourage people to come to us. We like to find out if they've been to other places first yeah because we shouldn't really be the first port of call right. for a research project except okay. when people know that we have something that's not available somewhere else right and we do we have a trade magazine called the cinema news and property gazette hmm. we have a complete run apart from one half volume in 1916 and that ran from 1911 to 1972 now trade magazines are essential for people who are researching the history of cinema okay. because they have so much detail yeah you know it's not only what the cinemas showed and the reviews of the film it's stuff to do with the industry mm -hmm. and the changes in the industry and all of that so it's an important resource and i feel we should offer that to people we contribute to exhibitions we recent were re doing a co-production project with an italian photographer called francesco uh, that's happening at the Casa de Cinema and next year it'll be happening at the museum. And right. that's, a, that's a photographic exhibition to do with volunteers. Mm. Uh, and, you know, why. Right. And what they get out of it. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, that kind of thing. So. Well, just sort of touching on that briefly because you haven't really sort of spoken about the volunteers. How many volunteers do you have in total at the moment? I think there's approximately 60. Right. Um, they vary quite a lot in some of them are behind the scenes volunteers and others are front of house volunteers so it's a range mm -hmm. the other thing we like to do is we like to have uh, people who can be part of a focus group right so we'll go to people who are experts 
and say, look, we'd like to have a couple of meetings talking about this mm -hmm. element. You know, how do we make the museum more green and ecological? Okay, yeah. So we'd go and find some people who are on the ecological side and probably have two or three meetings with them about how we can pull together a plan mm -hmm. over time, which means that we would be a green or a greener museum. Yeah. Um, I like that way of working because you've got people with knowledge and expertise who mm. are contributing and it means that the museum is in development, it's not in stasis. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah, yeah. an important part of it, that you, you must have ambitions, you must have plans for the future, mm. even if they don't happen those connections can be very important yeah yeah you know it's another way of working with people and the museum's very much about working with yeah. people yeah so we've definitely got a real big community vibe so yeah. who is the longest serving volunteer you've got in your books at the Anna, moment? Anna Aldrich yeah yeah she was possibly our first volunteer and this would have been before we moved to the master's house hmm. um it it was slightly complicated in the old fire station um, because we weren't being so public. Mm. The moment we moved into the master's house and realised that we could now do a programme of events, we ne definitely knew we needed to expand the volunteer pool because we need people who can run the bar, the cafe. We need technical people. We have a wonderful head of technology called Phil Clark. Um, I'm very pleased with the passion that the volunteers have for the museum and the collection. Um, and lastly, where can people check out the Cinema Museum, support the, fund to buy, the fundraising campaign to help buy the building, follow on social media and also possibly volunteer? Yeah. OK, well, we have a website, www.cinemamuseum.org.uk. That will have... Uh, you can... Join up for the newsletter. There's lots of information about the museum, lots of information about our future plans and hopes. There will be information going onto the website about the fundraising campaign. There isn't anything quite there yet, but maybe in a month's time there'll be something that's coming up. There is information about the leases and how that works, how they're intertwined with one another. There is also a volunteer at cinemamuseum.org.uk email that button that you can press um, I have to say the volunteering opportunities at the museum are generally speaking rather routine so anybody who's thinking that they might be working with the collection that's really rather unlikely um, but obviously people come for the atmosphere and yeah. the enjoyment and also, if you're a volunteer, you can attend events, of course. Uh, that's a plus point for it. Um, yeah. Um, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Twitter is at Cinema Museum, I believe. Um, I, other, other people look after the social media. Um, but yes, you can find us. We're there. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time this Thank afternoon you, and speaking to me at the Cinema Museum. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.